everyone, this is Jesse. We have a very special episode for you today, our first Sludgefest interview with a special guest, Dr. Julia Morris, author of the book Asylum and Extraction in the Republic of Nauru. This is the book that really inspired and informed our series on Nauru the past two episodes. Uh, and it was really great to, to discuss her work and her experience. It's really awesome uh, time talking to her. Um, but before we get into it, I really want to acknowledge the atrocities currently being committed in Palestine especially in Gaza. Since the attack by Hamas on October 7th that killed over 1,400 Israelis, the government of Israel has drastically ramped up its retaliatory bombing campaigns in Gaza while denying water, electricity, fuel to the area. Uh, Israel has bombed civilian targets like hospitals, churches, mosques, apartment buildings, bakeries. These strikes have specifically targeted journalists from outlets like Al Jazeera covering the conflict. Uh, as well as their families. We recorded the interview you're about to hear in mid-October, but as of today, and I'm recording this intro bit, it's November 7th, uh, over 10,000 people in Gaza have been killed, with over 4,000 of them being children. Palestinians are being bombed while they're seeking shelter and while they're moving along so-called safe routes. Just today, another refugee camp was bombed by Israel. As I write this, hospitals have run out of fuel to keep their generators on or are bombed out of commission. People are undergoing surgeries without anesthetic. People are drinking contaminated salty water to stay alive. And entire families are being wiped out of the registry. These are war crimes, and UN officials are warning of a, quote, risk of genocide. The Israeli Holocaust scholar Raz Siegel is plainly calling it genocide. In fact, he says it's a textbook case of genocide. Um, I have no problem calling it a genocide. Um, it's part of a long campaign of ethnic cleansing and brutality against the Palestinian people. Um, I'm not going to pretend to be an expert on the Middle East. I'm not Palestinian or Israeli or Muslim or Jewish. Uh, that being said, uh, this is a podcast about environmental, ecological, and public health disasters as viewed often through a decolonial lens. Uh, war, to me, is the ultimate incarnation of colonial violence, waged against peoples, waged against ecosystems, against life itself. It's To me, it's the pinnacle of our instrumentalization of death and suffering. And it's so often it's wielded against peoples for colonial expansion, for exploitation, for occupation. From an environmental health perspective, the damage in Gaza is widespread and long-term. I want to emphasize that, that uh, those that survive bombing runs may very well develop cancers from inhaling all of the dust from bombed out offices and apartments. Malnutrition, dehydration, trauma, all these things can contribute to lifelong physical and mental health issues, especially in children. Um, you know, all these things considered, for me, these events are made much more legible by viewing the actions of the government of Israel as a continuation of a bloody, decades-old settler colonial project, one maintained through violence against civilians, often and made possible with support, arms, and funding from the United States and other allies. So there's kind of a trend in at least the American media sphere and public sphere of, you know, one has to condemn the attacks by Hamas against Israeli civilians before even speaking about the oppression of the Palestinian people. I think this framing is is deliberately kind of uh, ignorant of, of history. Um I think we can simultaneously be horrified by the violence uh, carried out by Hamas against civilians in Israel, uh, while also recognizing that these killings that are happening in Palestine 
and Israel did not emerge, you know, out of the ether. These are the symptoms of a broader colonial project of occupation, of land theft, of oppression, of apartheid that began in the early 1900s. Moreover, I would like to think we can separate the identity and the culture and the history of Jewish people worldwide from the interests and actions of a nation state, just as we can separate Palestinian identity, culture, and history from Hamas. Gaza, with its 2.3 million residents, something like 40% of them are children, by the way, has long been described by scholars as an open-air prison blockaded by Israel for 16 years. People are very rarely allowed to leave, if at all. The poverty rate is about 80%. Clean water is unavailable for about 95% of Gazans. Uh, the infant mortality rate is about four times higher in Palestine overall than in Israel. In refugee camps, it is six times higher. Healthcare access is severely limited for Palestinians, particularly for serious illnesses like cancer. In fact, I think Israel just yesterday bombed one of the remaining cancer treatment centers in Palestine. Throughout the occupation, Israel has wielded a large web of surveillance and the bleeding edge of weapons technology, much of which courtesy of the USA, to control and inflict brutal violence upon the Palestinian people, even when they have protested peacefully. Uh, you know, you can, for this, I would look up the Great March of Return in 2018. It's an example of a peaceful protest met with overwhelming violence and cruelty. Uh, finally, on, on nearly every episode of Sledgefest so far, we encountered a pattern of dehumanization. Uh, this is something actually we touched on in the following discussion with Dr. Morris. Uh, dehumanization that flows from colonial authorities to the frontier, serving as a justification for ethnic cleansing, for subjugation, for other forms of violence inflicted on indigenous peoples worldwide. Um, it's an othering of peoples that I think lubricates the gears of violence. The Israeli defense minister on October 9th said, quote, we are fighting human animals and we will act accordingly. And he said, quote, there would be no electricity, no food, no fuel, end quote. A now deleted tweet from the Israeli prime minister himself said, quote, this is a struggle between the children of light and the children of darkness, between humanity and the law of the jungle, end quote. On our side of the pond, the American Republican Senator Lindsey Graham said, quote, we are in a religious war here. Do whatever the hell you have to do. Level the place. End quote. Uh, so the Biden administration, the vast majority of Congress are currently standing behind Israel throughout all this, though with not without protest from several members of the House. About 400 congressional staffers, many of them themselves Muslim or Jewish, and uh, several State Department officials have actually resigned uh, in protest of the administration's handling of this. Even still, the Biden admin has not wavered in its support for the Israel's aggression and has actually called demands for a ceasefire repugnant, which, short side note, I think that's interesting because the Pope just recently came out in support for a ceasefire. So curious if Biden would tell the Pope that he's repugnant. I doubt it. Um, in the meantime, massive pro-Palestine demonstrations have gathered in cities all around the world, which is inspiring. Um, I do believe that a better world is possible, even if sometimes that thought feels really naive and silly. Uh, but before we can dream up a better world, I think we need to understand the systems in place that currently determine much of our trajectory. I'm speaking of colonialism, capitalism, imperialism, racism. Uh, I can't help but imagine a world where living things of all kinds can flourish, where they can be free to be, free to love and to be loved. 
uh, don't just listen to me, just some random ass white guy in the Midwest. Uh, please read some writing and scholarship by Palestinians themselves and experts in this space. Uh, in the show notes, I've linked uh, some works that I've personally found useful and compelling and motivating. Uh, there's a piece in The Baffler called Doomsday Diaries by Sarah Aziza that I found really, really moving. A link to that. Um, I'm also reading The Hundred Years War on Palestine by Rashid Khalidi. It's a really informative book. Uh, I also included some links in the show notes uh, to where you can donate to some relief projects in the region. Uh, or if you're American, I have some links to contact your representatives to demand a ceasefire and an end to the occupation of Palestine. Thank you for listening. I know this is hard to talk about and to think about, but I think we need to stand up against, you know, colonialism and occupation and brutality and violence. And our thoughts are with everyone impacted. Um, again, please, if you are, have the means, uh, please donate to uh, aid organizations like anera.org or uh, more important for the immediate future, um, please call your representatives and demand a ceasefire and end to occupation. Okay. Uh, thank you for listening to that. Um, Right now, I'm excited to share with you this really lovely discussion with Dr. Julia Morris about her book, Asylum and Extraction in the Republic of Nauru. I'm going to read an intro quote from her paper for some context. Um, if you haven't listened to the two episodes about Nauru, I recommend doing that. Uh, but I think there will probably be enough context in the beginning here that uh, will still make it interesting. But I think you'll get the most out of it if you listen to those two episodes first. Um, but yeah, here we go. The 21-square-kilometer Pacific island of Nauru is a palimpsest of past and present colonial infrastructural forms. Barely perceptible imprints in the sand still evoke the long-abandoned phosphate trains of the British Phosphate Commission's colonial extraction years, when Nauru's coral atoll was mined in earnest for the lucrative fertilizer compound. Rows of white colonial company town architecture laid out in a gridded geometry, formerly occupied by Australian phosphate workers, now lie faded. Pools of sewage and pothole dirt tracks lead to once Bougainvillea-covered bungalow compounds for expatriate executive administrators. Phosphate loading bays rust into layers of yellowed copper decay, while a pockmarked landscape strewn with limestone rubble and cut through by jagged pinnacles testifies to the country's past industry in extracting phosphate as fertilizer for global consumptive demands. But in these imperial ruins, new infrastructural convergences have arisen, vital to Nauru's refashioning as a contemporary company town around a mineral-turned-migrant commodity. After a brief post-independence heyday when Nauruans took over their colonial phosphate enterprise in 1968, earning the world's second-highest GDP per capita after Saudi Arabia, the small sovereign state's economy crashed in the 1990s with ostentatious aplomb. On an on-then-off basis, following 2001 and 2012 agreements between Nauru and Australia, Anyone who makes their way by boat and claims to be a refugee in Australian territorial, now excised, waters is offshored by the Australian government to Nauru for refugee processing and resettlement. Histrionic debates about national security, coupled with the deep history of selective nation-building, constitute some of the political currency of offshoring refugee operations for Australia. End quote.
Hello, this is Jesse, and you're listening to a special episode of SledgeFest. I'm here with Dr. Julie Morris, author of the book Asylum and Extraction in the Republic of Nauru. Uh, Dr. Morris is Assistant Professor of International Studies at the University of North Carolina, Wilmington. Uh, she holds a Doctorate of Philosophy in Social and Cultural Anthropology from the University of Oxford. Uh, she researches migration policy with a focus on Western outsourcing of asylum processing and offshore detention to other nations, often former colonial holdings. Uh, her research has taken her to Australia, Geneva, Fiji, Jordan, Guatemala, and of course, uh, you know, for our purposes here today, the Republic of Nauru. Um, in in this book that we we cited pretty heavily in our our series, um, I really found this a really compelling read. I highly recommend you guys check it out. Um, she traces the path of extractive colonial industry imposed on the island nation by multiple countries throughout its history, uh, Australia in particular, in the modern era drawing parallels between the industries of phosphate mining and offshore detention and exploring media representations and discourses in Australia and how those uh, discourses have, have affected the growth uh, of the industry and created some toxic legacies for uh, Nauruans and asylum seekers. So, uh, yeah, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us, Dr. Morris. It's great to have you here. How are you doing today? I'm good. Thanks, Jesse, for the warm introduction and for oh, inviting me to be here. Yeah, excited right to be here with you all. Right on. Um, so I thought I would start before we get into the the details here of just, you know, obviously this is something you study is the uh, the commodification of, of of humans, you know, and, and detention and outsourcing detention. But uh, what what could you talk about what drew you to perform research regarding Nauru specifically? Um, yeah, sure. So I hadn't actually intended initially to do fieldwork in Nauru. Um, I was actually looking at the privatization of migration management and specifically around immigration detention. So initially I was looking more at the involvement of private corporations and I was doing um, some work before my PhD in Austin in Texas, uh, despite my accent. I actually grew up in Texas. <laughs> no way. Yeah, yeah. I was born in Texas. Oh, I'm really? Two Texans here, yeah. Oh, neither of us with the accent. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Hidden Texans. Wow. Um, That's wild. Yeah, so I was involved with an organization in Austin called Grassroots Leadership, and they do some pretty awesome work on trying to push mm -hmm. back around the privatization of prisons, but also immigration detention. So looking at the ways in which private prison corporations have kind of expanded their remit to mm. like a new market, that being migrants. Right. Um, yeah, so I was, I was involved with them. And then when I started my PhD, I really wanted to expand looking at that. But I was thinking also about the involvement of NGOs too, and sort of thinking about privatization a little bit more expansively about how many different actors are involved that aren't just you know your classic evil private corporations mm -hmm. um and so i decided to contextualize my fieldwork to australia which has an entirely privatized immigration detention system actually a um british private uh, security mm -hmm. company circo um is heavily involved but they also have a um a really large uh sector of ngos and faith-based organizations who are involved when it comes to refugee support and mm. uh status determination but also resettlement provisions um and then when i was in australia and i was sort of running around the whole of australia with a dictaphone trying to <laughs> uh 
interview different organizations there who were contractually involved in different aspects of asylum. Um, so not, I wasn't looking anymore at immigration detention per se, but like um, asylum more expansively. Mm -hmm. um, I realized that the really big money contracts at the time were in Nauru. Mm -hmm. And that was where organizations were getting these sort of multi-million dollar contracts. Um, so I decided to go to Nauru and, uh, and see what was happening. And when I arrived there, it was just stark how much of an industry it was and how Nauru revolved in the same way as um, with the phosphate colonial era mm -hmm. around the processing now of migrants and the sort of long-term holding of, of migrants or people and um, migrants claiming asylum um, mm -hmm. and looking at these kind of overlaps between these two industry sectors, um, as well as just the array of different organizations who were there. So I was able to get a research visa initially in Fiji at the University of the South Pacific, where I was doing oh, archival. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Um, I was doing archival research there um, around Nauru's phosphate era. And then I was able to extend that research visa to Nauru actually has a small University of the South Pacific campus. So oh, wow. that was kind of how I, how I ended yeah. up. Wow. And, it, you know, it's something I was uh, struck by coming back to the, you know, just looking over my notes again to prepare for this. Uh, you know, you, you make clear in the book, the, the parallels, the very obvious parallels between the phosphate industry and the, in the kind of offshore detention industry evolving out of that. Um, yeah. it's, it's, and it, it, it is clear that it's like kind of all compressed on this one. What is it? 20, 21 square kilometers Island. Yeah. Like There's this very focused nexus of all this going on, but something I didn't fully appreciate until I was revisiting this is, uh, you know, you have all these systems that kind of lend themselves to prepare Nauru for, you know, moving from phosphate to the refugee uh, you know the asylum industry, mm. uh, but I didn't. I didn't realize that often the infrastructure is quite literally the same infrastructure. Like some of these complexes, is that right? Like, yeah. Uh, yeah. So I mean, sort of buildings that um, in the phosphate haze uh, were once used to house workers, for example, were being repurposed for the asylum, the refugee industry, um, or like phosphate industry equipment, like diggers <laughs> that were being used um, by uh, uh, by the phosphate industry being used to, um, you know, develop infrastructure for right. the refugee industry. So you have these like really stark overlaps of this sort of repurposing of um, infrastructural forms and, um, uh, and technologies and equipment. Another stark one actually was, um, I've got a photo of this in my book, of um workers collection vans which oh would, yeah yeah which would like i would see them every morning and every evening picking up or dropping off workers associated with the phosphate industry but the same vans had a different sticker on them wow. and they were also picking up workers and dropping off workers associated with the asylum industry uh, yeah so it's 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 not just this like structural you know something else you mentioned is the the kind of return of the the you know predominantly white Australian administrative class to this to this industry you know that was something we saw in the phosphate industry yeah of, of the administrators are kind of hailing from these 
you know, the, the former colonial masters or, you know, what, uh, what have you. Um, and that kind of returns with this new boom town of, of the asylum in the detention industry. Uh, and then on top of that, you have literally the same buildings, same infrastructure. And I, you know, it, it makes sense now thinking of it. It's like this place wasn't, it seems to be, it, it seems a likely spot for this to happen in the terms of, you know, this infrastructure has already been built up there. And it's, it's like a, it's sickening it is to say it. it's like a, a, a understandable switch from one industry to the next. You can see where, you know, how that change was facilitated, I guess, which yeah. makes me nauseous to think about. But yeah. And I think more so than in other places where the um, Australian government has had kind of outsourced offshore asylum operations like on Manus Island, mm-hmm. um, Nauru was much more facilitable in a way because of these uh, deep colonial histories around, um, mm. you know, legal systems uh, or education systems or forms of land ownership that revolved around another industry sector and sort of the the size of the island as being governed as a company town around a resource. So sort of being able to to emplace another resource within within a previous one. Right, and kind of, uh, you know, just kind of uh, rebounding from one to the next with these uh, the influx of new corporations. And uh, it does seem like kind of a rotating cast of these uh, corporations with kind of a vague uh, names. It's kind of like a, like Transfield, I believe was one of them. Yeah. Like, you mentioned Circo. Circo. Uh, yeah. And Transfield services, they've actually, um, they're sort of one of these resource management companies that have been explicitly involved in forms of mineral extraction as well, not in Nauru, oh, but in other places. So um, quite literally organizations that have been involved in, in multiple sectors. And I, I actually met people working in Nauru um, for uh, asylum industry organizations who had previously either had family who had been involved in the phosphate industry in Nauru, which drew them to wow. want to be involved in Nauru again, but you know now in a industry revolving around humans. Um, yeah. So, yeah, there were ways in which I saw these convergences play out really starkly. And there's something that um, I think this helped me reframe this in my in my head readings in a, in a new way of, of you know, in, in the phosphate era, this is very obvious to, you know, I'm, I'm a, my background is in fish biology, so I'm, I'm kind of new to the, the anthropology and social sciences and stuff. But, yeah. um, you know, as I started investigating more environmental disasters for the purpose of this podcast, it's very hard to tell those stories without, and this is obvious in hindsight, without you first, you have to like kind of see the often colonial kind of underpinnings of all of it. You have to go back to, you know, yeah. how this all started. Um, you can't really tell these stories without saying like, okay, well, this island initially, it's, you know, was colonized by, I think it was the Germans first for, for culprit trading. And then it was, yeah. and it, you see these structures kind of evolving over time, but um, something that remains, you know, disappointingly similar is this uh, language of dehumanization I found, you know, um, yeah. but whether it's Nauruans themselves or, or, or later on uh, refugees themselves calling them, um, what was the, the common phrase I think in Australian discourse around this time was like boat people, the boat people. Yeah. It's just, just like people being referred to by boat numbers or ugh. yeah. Yeah. And uh, you know, as an American, obviously I can't, throw shade on Australia, we, we obviously have very, very similar issues with, you know, dehumanizing people as illegals or, or aliens mm. and things like that. Um, but I was wondering if you could talk about, you know, there was, there's this 
quote, I think it's from, uh, is it Howard or maybe it's Scott Morrison, where it's just the phrase, we decide who comes into this country. Um, and I was wondering if you could talk about kind of that discourse around nation building, perhaps, and how it lends itself to to the creation of this industry uh, off offshore. Um, yeah, so yeah, so this is a really infamous quote um, from the previous Australian Prime Minister, John Howard, who sort of mm. um, pushed forward the the start of this kind of offshoring arrangement um, of, you know, we will decide who comes to this country and the circumstances in which they come. Mm. Um, and that was kind of part of, of justifying um, through this, like, we're in control of our borders and um, we're going to meticulously um, control how people come in and out of those borders and who comes in and out of those borders. And that sort of initially led to um, the first development of Nauru um, and Papua New Guinea's Manus Island uh, under this um, the infamous Tampa affair, which was when mm. people were um, sort of initially uh, trying to, to reach Australia to, to claim asylum. Um, and so, but Australia has this deep uh, settler colonial history, um, as do other settler colonial nations around sort of um, creating these kind of imaginaries, uh, these like exclusionary and inclusionary ma imaginaries of um, of who gets to control access to to the land and to resources. So Australia, um, perhaps more so than other settler colonial states has made that pretty explicit by having yeah. um, this, I mean, there was initially an Immigration Restriction Act that was developed in 1901 that was known as the white Australia policy. So, yeah. I mean, it was pretty explicit how right. racialized this was. Um, yeah, and of course, it's... like all incredibly contradictory and ironic given that, um, you know, Australia is now trying to control their borders in this way, but, uh, right. settler colonialists <laughs> in the first place. Right. And, uh, it, it's, it, it is unfortunate how often, like, you know, even these more more liberal or, or, um, NGO representations of Nauruans themselves, you know, ostensibly they're, they're often trying to, you know, help the quote unquote, the refugee. Um, but they sometimes fall into some similarly like racist tropes, uh, you know, deployed against Nauruans as kind of, uh, I don't know, like a in the media representations as like a, a a gulag, like a tropical gulag or something, or as Nauruans as like you know mm. s kind of savage uh, runners of this of this system. Whereas in reality, it's kind of this highly funded, like uh, industrialized. Uh, you know, it's still a violent industry, right? But it, it it's not. It seems like a lot of the representations in Australian media, media if I'm if I'm understanding uh, your book correctly, they kind of miss the forest for the trees, so to speak. And they yeah. kind of lay, the, lay it at the feet of Nauruans themselves who are, you know, also victims in a, in a way of a, of a system, if I'm getting that right. Yeah, and I guess, you know, that's part of the appeal of these kinds of arrangements for Western governments of it like abdicates them of responsibility mm -hmm. in a way. And that's, you know, not to say that there's not um, activists and individuals who are trying to fight that up and say, you know, <laughs> this isn't, uh, right. this isn't the reality, but um, it, kind of outsources uh, right. that to another country. And so instead, um, a lot of the rhetoric in the in the case with Nauru um, has heavily targeted islanders. 
um, is um, uh, being brutal towards uh, refugees, if at least sort of that's coming from more of the leftist liberal perspective, mm-hmm. um, or of Nauru is this place of deterrence and this kind of um, island of despair. Um, and that's right. kind of part of the deterrent strategy of Australia of if we send um, people to uh, this island that is now shrouded in this uh, kind of uh, rhetoric of um, uh, just underdevelopment and mm. um, and this sort of thing, then that will deter people from making those journeys. Right. And it, it does seem like, you know, in the same way that value was extracted, you know, quite directly from phosphate um, in terms of just selling it or making fertilizer into it, right? Uh, there's like a, I think you call it like a moral value that is extracted, in, you know, in the sense that for the more conservative, you know, border hawks, they're extracting this value of, like you say, deterrence of uh, if we make it nasty enough, people won't want to come here anymore, which is, yeah, of course, disgusting. But, you know, in the, also in the other end of it, it's, you know, sometimes you get de- uh, tropes of, of, we need to sort out, you know, the deserving refugee versus just, you know, a migrant. Um, but again, that yeah. just kind of misses this. I don't know. I kept reading through these, uh, the, you know, your descriptions of how it's, you know, a lot of these people have to kind of litigate their trauma, if that's the right term, and kind of perform uh, yeah. as, as a refugee, which is, it's kind of seems to create these perverse incentives in my mind of like, I don't know, someone showing up in, in Nauru and having to kind of prove their deservingness uh, to, to enter a country is also not good, right? I mean... Yeah, and I mean, I guess that's um, part of the um, or my issues with the international asylum system in general, in that mm-hmm. migrants, particularly poor migrants of colour from the global south, um, are pushed to perform within these kinds of rescue gratitude um, right. narratives of um, you know being decided to be legitimately suffering um, in order to move across a border. Um, and it's heavily racial. I mean, so Ukraine, for example, Ukrainian migrants mm. actually didn't have to go through the asylum system. People um, were automatically um, given short-term residency visas in uh, in the EU. So mm. it's um, definitely a heavily racialized system. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we we of course see like this the mirror version of this in uh, in America. We you know we have a long history, obviously, with you know, kind of Islamophobic islamophobic uh, rhetoric which is of course like cropping up again and yeah again this issue of, of dehumanization of people um in trying to like kind of sort out the ones that will help our country be better versus the ones who don't deserve to come here and then you yeah kind of just you know i i kept uh, having this thought during you know descriptions of all these millions of dollars going to these industries to to sort out these people and figure out what's going on and then you have like kind of these uh I don't know what you call them, like company town team building events almost of like, I think Transfield was one of these that was, he was hosting these events of like, yeah. And it just kind of made me wonder over and over, like, what are we doing here? Like, what is, what is the actual, and of course what we're doing here is, is, you know, there's extraction of value and stuff, but it it just seems so, when you take a thousand yard away glance at it, it just seems like, can we not just like figure out how to help these people, which may obviously seems like a naive you know, thing to say, I guess, but 
it, it seems like yeah. it's all very built around extracting value, if, um, if that makes sense. Yeah, and I mean, sort of ironically, the, the, the millions, the billions of dollars that had been poured into this arrangement um, would actually have been saved and instead people would be economically contributing to Australia. Right. And all of the asylum seekers I met in Nauru just like really wanted to contribute and uh, and work. Yeah. And, also, and it wasn't very many people at all. It was, you know, a very small number of people, but this sort of spectacle um, of like inflating the numbers of people of uh, people sort of pouring over the border um, was um, kind of part of, I guess, part of the extraction of value of we're going to have these hardline border policies when in reality right. it was a it was a small number of people who actually wanted to economically contribute. Yeah, and it's, it seems that, you know, it does seem like it was kind of uh, this inflated, um, it, the only way I can think of it is like a nexus surrounding Nauru of you have all these corporations coming in and then there's like the legal needs that this system requires. So you have all these legal experts that need to fly in. Yeah. You have the executives flying in and out. Yeah. Just yeah. I mean, like... it was just like an offshore mining industry, to be honest, right. like so much of the, I guess, kind of quote unquote labor and expertise uh, was coming from, from Australia or from Geneva or, from Fiji, because um, Fiji mm -hmm. has um, also because of its own colonial histories, um, um, uh, uh, very established legal system. So there were a lot of lawyers actually who took on right. positions within the Nauruan government from Fiji. Right, and um, you know something you you also mention uh, is, is you know a lot of these people working for NGOs, uh, they they seem to show up with of course good intentions and, and things like that of trying to figure out how to help these people but mm. um i'm wondering like i think there's a quote somewhere in, in here that's it's i'm paraphrasing you here but basically you ask the question how do these structures sensibly built to deliver justice for people to figure out how to help them ostensibly how do they end up creating and perpetuating injustice you know even when you have people you know, these fresh new recruits for, you know, these NGOs that show up trying to help. And then, but inevitably you see this same kind of repetition of, of injustice going on. I was wondering if you could speak on that. Yeah. I mean, I guess that's kind of part of the often cited unintended consequences or paradoxes of humanitarian action. And mm. that uh, you have people going into um, very barbed contexts with, um, benevolent intentions, but they end up perpetuating the system um, and are part of upholding it. And I um, met people working for Save the Children, for example, which was one major NGO that had a contract in Nauru who started eventually calling Save the Children, their employer, Save the Contract, um, because they were told not to speak out about some pretty egregious things that they'd yeah. witnessed by um, by top executives that save the children because Jeez. um if they did speak out then save the children might lose that contract and it was it was a huge contract that um yeah. was um really kind of financially helped out a lot of their other services and in different areas outside of sure I, I guess that speaks to the the parallels of, of like these high risk industries you know this uh these gigantic uh organizations kind of coming into a distant place, uh, you know, this, in the case of phosphate extractions, it's not it's something you can just have like a small 
company take care of it. It has to be these, like, I guess these gigantic uh, entities coming in. And, uh, I don't know. It just seems like yeah, classic high risk uh, industry. Yeah. And I mean, there were all kinds of health and safety provisions, for example, that were put into place that I witnessed or um, efforts to make sure um, that, uh, that no one died because otherwise yeah. that would shine a spotlight that, that, you know, no asylum seeker or refugee died. I mean, there right. were, there was the development of the Nauru lifeguards, for example, which was funded by Australia because um, of a tragic really? drowning. Oh, um, God. Uh, that. that Yeah. That happened in, in, in Nauru of a, a refugee and also a Nauruan who ran in to save him. Oh, um, yeah. And so the Australian uh, government funded the development of a local lifeguarding program. Oh. So there were all of these ways in which you saw how there were these efforts to um, kind of perpet uh, to soften the mm-hmm. um, the challenges and the risks that were developing from this um, very lucrative but also very high risk enterprise. Yeah, and to uh, I imagine quite a bit of that money goes into you know the more cynical read of it, of course, is that. You don't want a high-profile media story about your company with some sort of scandal coming out if you want to keep these contracts. So I guess yeah. that speaks to the save the contract sort of mentality yeah. that ends up kind of existing. Even if you know the low-level people come in with with great intentions, it's still this kind of uh, pretty terrifying, <laughs> I think, uh, you know, system of of large contracting agencies and stuff. Yeah. Um, I kind of changing tax a little bit. I, I was I wondering if you could speak a little bit about. It. So you spent I think three months on Nauru. Is that right? I did. Yeah, that that was in my sort of longer stint, and I had a shorter stint before that. Oh, yeah. gotcha. Um, what did you have any sort of strategy in terms of how to actually just uh, interview people, or or is it was it more kind of informal? Uh, I guess it was like classic anthropological deep hanging <laughs> so my method my method was deep hang right on um so i would just involve myself as much as i could in um things that were happening locally so i was as i said i was a res- visiting research student at the um university of the south pacific campus there so um i was really heavily involved in um a lot of work that they were doing so you know i would help out with various usp events mm-hmm. um that were taking place or like i would volunteer in at local schools or um i would I, another methodology um was hitchhiking <laughs> i i hitchhiked a lot around Nauru. um wow. and i would meet so many different people that way uh wow. And I also had a bike, so um, I was kind of the the crazy grad student who was just cycling around the room, and everyone was always just looking like, "Who the heck is this?" Like just cycling about. I was like one of the the only person who was cycling around the room. Um, wow. So that I, also like lent itself to striking up a lot of conversations. Sure, I wonder if that was like more, you know, you're you're more likely to get accurate or or honest uh answers from people or discussions from people than if you were to say show up with a notebook and say like i'm here to interview you regarding yeah i mean i think that would have freaked a lot of people out to be honest Um, especially with like a a, you know there's already like this media spotlight i guess Um, yeah wow yeah no i found i found the best way was um just kind of 
inserting myself in uh in what was going on and just kind of contributing and helping out and yeah. uh, uh doing things that way i ran in nuru's annual 10k that was another no way another fun one of, wow uh, that's yeah. that's pretty cool was it like around the circumference of the island i guess yeah it was like half of the island wow that's pretty cool yeah I actually uh, won. I won the women's. <laughs> really? Nice. Yeah, yeah. I won wow, the women's. Congrats. I got. A, I got a cup. It was presented by the president. What? Yeah. Okay, that's that's amazing. Do you still have it? I don't. I had to leave it. It was massive. No. It was a really oh, okay. huge cup. I've still got my shirt though. Okay. I yeah. Mean, if you get the shirt, that's good. But yeah, yeah, I imagine it's probably hard to, you know, get luggage off of the. Island yeah, I mean, stuff. it was full on like Olympic kind of. Whoa. <laughs> plastic That's gold cup cool. uh, i hope you got a picture with it though at least i did i did yeah okay good good um you know kind of on that same uh in that same topic i know it's you mentioned a few times that you tried to stay like uninvolved in the actual development of the industry obviously like you don't want to yeah come in and, and like change the trajectory of things right because if you're trying to be i imagine like it's similar in fish science i suppose uh, you kind of want to be an observer, but it's hard. To, I imagine, you know, it's especially hard to not get, you know, attached or involved with people's lives, obviously. So yeah. was that a difficult kind of balancing act to like, I don't know, not get too in, in, involved with the actual development of things on Nauru while still getting, you know, candid answers from people and, and helping out and being around? Yeah, it, I mean, I guess it's kind of the classic uh at least anthropological conundrum um mm. of like how far can you actually be a fly on the wall mm-hmm. um so you know there were a number of ways where i <laughs> i panicked because i thought that i might be um contributing in some way to the development of right. of the industry there of because i was hanging out a lot at the university campus and i would sometimes have refugees who would come in and ask about different course offerings and you know Mm. i would uh be worried that you know if i'm saying about different course offerings that are happening here is that leading to the growth of this industry um so yeah it was tough it was it was definitely it was definitely a, a concern of mine of of like how to sort of conduct the research and be able to write and make visible what was going on there without um also strengthening and bolstering uh the really horrific situation right yeah you don't want to end up you know you know the same as people that go in to work for these ngos with good intentions but end up kind of getting very disillusioned with their own role in it i imagine can be a really hard thing to grapple with uh, yeah you know and like prison abolitionists, for example, like some um, prison abolitionists like Angela Davis would say you shouldn't intervene in any way. Like you shouldn't ever go mm. into and work in a prison because right. um, that is then bolstering it. Um, but then others would argue that, you know, maybe it's a um, kind of abolitionists and um, people who are engaging in that way, working together in order to sort of dismantle um, right. a, a, violent, a violent system is what can lead to long term social change. Yeah, it's, I mean, imagine it's a thorny issue, especially if you're literally on the ground there. You know, the people are there in front of you. It's not, you know, you're not just writing about it from afar. It's like you've actually met a lot of these people. Uh, yeah. From the people working in their actual detention centers to, you know, just people on the street to, uh, 
yeah, I, I can't get over that you were hitchhiking. That's as an introvert, this scared, this terrifies me. But I respect <laughs> it. That's like such a cool uh, uh, strategy to like meet. Yeah, of course you're going to meet new people if you're just kind of on the side of the road. That's, uh, that's yeah. I mean, it, it would literally, it would be, I would be hitchhiking with people working for the Australian immigration department through wow. to like, the ruins who were working to train to become refugee status determination uh wow. uh authorities so it really catapulted me into these different worlds that otherwise i might not be able to sure. be a part of yeah um you know this is kind of unrelated but something i, I keep thinking about in, you know descriptions of of going on the island there's this issue of phosphate dust that uh we weren't able to cover much in the in our episodes but mm. uh, it does seem like it's still like a lingering issue um, yeah is this something that like affected you like what, what was your experience with this like is it something that was kind of every day there's like this dust that comes out and kind of upsets people's lungs and things or is it yeah kind of so when I was in Nauru, um, there was actually an issue with the um, with the loading bay. So um, phosphate ships weren't able to come in, um, and this was a you know a huge concern for everyone because it meant that this like big phosphate shipment that was going to happen was delayed, mm. um, and then it was literally like the last week or two that I was in Nauru that they were able to fix the the sort of docking area oh, and wow. um so I was there for when this phosphate the loading of this phosphate ship happened so I got to you know finally experience what it was what it was like because I'd heard all of these anecdotes from friends mm. and neighbors about when phosphate loading was happening about how it was just like these clouds that would envelop the island and Oof. how people would have to hose down their roofs and like um scrub their cars um over and over again to get it off Jeez. so yeah and like respiratory conditions are rife around Nauru as well that's mm -hmm. um sort of one of the the leading causes of um hospital admissions oh, um geez. so yeah so i experienced it in the last couple of weeks when i was there and um yeah it was it was it was pretty intense <laughs> yes. um yeah just these these clouds of clouds of dust kind of enveloping part of the um part of the island and you know depending on the direction of the winds um right. it could be almost all of the islands right yeah, it's, yeah i mean imagine it's hard to escape you know on a, again 21 square kilometer island it's not there's only so many places you can go to i imagine and uh, yeah and some places like i've been to christmas island actually which is mm -hmm. another um phosphate uh mining outpost mm -hmm. and um usually they'll only do the loading when the winds are blowing in a particular direction oh, um, so that it doesn't affect um islanders but that was not the case <laughs> that yeah. i experienced in Nauru. it was oh, just no. a we we need the money from this like let's load yeah we get it yeah especially if it's been you know whatever amount of time since they last loaded a a, a shipment it's just more let's get this stuff loaded and then worry about it later kind of uh situation maybe yeah it's, you know speaking of the of health impacts something that struck me was the uh there's i think there's like very very high rates of diabetes and things like that from the yeah the impo mostly imported diet that was kind of a consequence of uh obviously the destruction of agriculture in the phosphate era yeah um, is this something that remains like 
I don't know, is that that's something you saw you know, going around? I imagine there's like health advisories of and uh, these companies sometimes do like outreach events to make healthy choices type situation. Uh, yeah, I mean, there were signs up around um, sort of healthy eating and there were a lot of efforts to um, kind of promote healthy eating around uh, around the islands. But yeah, there are these deep colonial histories uh, around that, starting even, um, you know, before Nauruans took on the, the phosphate industry. So, so much food mm. was um, ended up becoming fast food and sort of imported foods of right. like there are accounts of missionaries, for example, um, promoting that islanders cook their fish with oil um and and fry fish as opposed to you know eating it raw or eating it through healthier methods so um uh, yeah definitely something that was set in motion um well well before uh independence the, the frustrating part uh, i found was you know, i was looking up a kind of recent news broadcast just on you know from australia on issues in nauru and one of them was on the epidemic of, of diabetes and you know, they, they mentioned that it's a problem and that it needs to be fixed. And, and they talked to, you know, activists trying to fix it, but there was like no, no words devoted to like why this was the case. It's kind of framed as like, oh, now ruins simply just love these processed foods. Like they're yeah. addicted to fast food. And that, I don't know, that made me really angry to think about. It's like, it's not it's kind of framing as their fault, if that makes yeah. sense. Yeah. Yeah. And then kind of presenting it as like the benevolent Australian development mm -hmm. organizations coming in to like help. Um, right. So like coming in to teach them like aerobics or something as if that yeah. is like a, a, a long-term change for, uh, I don't know. That's just very frustrating. I imagine that, you know, this is me speculating, but I imagine that's kind of the, the framing of a lot of issues that Nauru faces is like very little uh, attention paid to the colonial history, perhaps you know, why things are the way they are. It's more like, in the it, trying to focus on the now if you're you know australia and uh, kind of glossing over these issues maybe i don't know yeah i mean again yeah, the ruins um really have a um a difficult time of it in terms of australian uh, mm -hmm. kind of media representations or right. political representations oftentimes of i mean when it was the handover of the phosphate industry australia basically just they just left uh so Nauruans were just kind of <laughs> like there with this, you know, what right. ended up being this incredibly lucrative phosphate industry, um, but without any kind of um, support or handover really. Um, and then there's like kind of these representations of like Nauruans as just money grabbing and going out of right. control and uh, too much. yeah and eating fast foods and all this sort of stuff but without um kind of invisibilizing a lot of those um mm -hmm. colonial histories that lent itself to that yeah it's a, a similar pattern we see in america i think of like uh, elevating personal responsibility above maybe all you know it's it's your responsibility to become healthy and stuff you know without you know investigation of perhaps the you know, socioeconomic causes of, of where yeah. these health issues come from. Uh, yeah. So, um, you know, speaking of kind of the, I, I was wondering to get your take on kind of the, what is next for Nauru? I mean, in, in the end of your book, you mentioned uh, uh, deep sea mining as, as a potential new booming resource, which uh, as someone who studied deep sea fish in grad school, I was, I was thrilled to see the detail in deep sea mining, but then I was also mm. 
of course, sickened and horrified when I really thought about it, uh, as, as like the next big thing for Naru uh, scares me. Um, but yeah, I was wondering what, what kind of is your sense of, of where things are headed in the next, I don't know, two decades or something for Naru, or is it, or is it something you can't even speculate on? I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of it is difficult to uh, sort of prophecy what mm-hmm. what what might happen. Deep sea mining is something that's been heavily promoted uh, by uh, by the Nauruan government recently. Nauru has actually mm-hmm. been kind of at the helm of of promoting deep deep sea mining and working in partnership with a Canadian company around that. Although um, sort of um, on the fence whether or not that's going to go ahead at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, obviously something that has hugely uh, catastrophic environmental uh, yeah. uh, effects. And, um, you know, people would talk about that with me locally, but sort of said, well, you know, phosphate mining, it was like on the island. At least this isn't going to be on our island. <laughs> this is going to be yeah. under the sea, even though, yeah. of course, you know, that's not the case because it affects foodways, it affects ecosystems. Oh, yeah. um, so yeah i mean that's that's kind of the main uh thing that's been mooted is because now um australia um is no longer sending uh asylum seekers to nauru although the nauruan government is still funded um Mm. not to the same extent as they have been in the past but they're still funded to kind of maintain this like operationally active system that can be used um in the future if required uh so kind of keeping the lights on uh with the detention centers um but i mean ironically it it could be the case that the ruins themselves might uh, be pushed into refugee situations Mm. um Nauru hasn't been experiencing the same kind of encroaching uh, climate effects that low-lying islands in the vicinity have been, like um, Kiribati, for example. Mm, um, because uh, Nauru is this atoll, so a lot of the um, the, uh, the island is raised. Although right. most people, the majority of people live around the circumference of the island which is which is not raised Uh, and there have been a lot of environmental changes um that that have been happening and a number of um of folk who i um who i know in Nauru have actually left to go and live in fiji Mm -hmm. so um yeah so i mean it could be um a possibility in the future that um people might have to have dual citizenship with Australia um, mm. and um, some some people might kind of end up moving back and forth more between Australia or, or Fiji if gotcha. the island becomes economically or just like environmentally unsustainable. Yeah, that, I mean, that's kind of the most, the, the most haunting option, I think, for the future is, you know, Nauruans having to become refugees themselves is, is yeah a grim prospect obviously um you know it's it it seems like a situation that has so much momentum to it from you know colonial violence in history that it's it's kind of scary to think about where it leads I suppose um you know not knowing anything really about where its trajectory might go but it, the the idea of, of them having to bounce to another extractive industry uh, doesn't seem great, but also the idea that they might just have to leave because of you know things like sea level rise. Yeah, it's grim nonetheless. Um, so I, I before we wrap up here, I just wanted to get a sense of uh, 
you know, what's what's next for your work? Are you are you interested in continuing to to do research on Nauru? Are you moving on to different areas, or uh, is there anything you're excited about or want to shout out that you're working on, or or where to find you online or anything like that? Yeah, so well, I'm currently developing a project that is um, using my work in Nauru, but also. Um, combining that with field work that I've done in other places around the world, like um, Guatemala, Jordan, Lebanon, mm. that's looking at the development of this kind of um, externalized asylum migration governance arrangement. But I'm thinking th about it through the framework of resource frontiers. Mm. So looking at this kind of like emerging asylum frontiers um, that are happening where you have this these spectrums of different industry organizations who are getting these mega contracts for uh, essentially ex extracting value from, from migrants claiming asylum and sort of the development of these similar kinds of outpost industry operations in other, mm -hmm. other locations around the world. So uh, not just in Nauru, although Nauru is so microcosmic of uh, yeah. what is happening in other places. So um, that's, that's a big thing that um, I'm involved in. And um, I mean, also involved in working with my students. So I lead a migration nice. and social justice study abroad program with, oh, cool. uh, with my students, which I've led to Oxford for the past couple of years, but I'm doing it to Cape Town uh, this awesome. year. So yeah, really excited about that. But um, I have a website, so um, I've got details on my research and my teaching and my study gotcha. abroad programs on there. Awesome. Well, we are going to link to that in the show notes for sure, as well as a link to uh, the book Asylum and Extraction in the Republic of Nauru. Again, I can't can't stress enough how much I, I felt like this book was really uh, informative for for uh, this, you know, the episodes we did. You know, as somebody I'm kind of backing into more sociological studies, uh, you know, from the harder sciences, quote unquote, harder sciences of, of like fish guts and stuff. Yeah. Um, but I found this I found this book really uh, both approachable in terms of like, I didn't need to be an expert in things to really understand what you were, I think what you were going for. Um, but it, the, the amount of detail and like, uh, you know, on the ground kind of anecdotes and stories and, and context, I thought was really super helpful and, and fascinating and, you know, beyond it's quite grim. Um, but I think it's obviously important context and uh, really important work. So, you know, thank you so much for, for taking the time to speak with us and for writing this book. Uh, yeah. Thank you so much. Thanks, Justy. Right on. Sludgefest is produced by me, Jesse Black, and Shannon Rawlings. Music by California Deathworm. That's CaliforniaDeathworm.bandcamp.com. Please check out Dr. Julia Morris's book, Asylum and Extraction in the Republic of Nauru. And please check out the show notes for sources and citations and places you can donate and help out to uh, support those in Palestine. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, remember, despair is useless. I love you.